1: A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch war bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Doomsday Watch. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has thrown up many unexpected consequences and new situations. One of those is the concept of a Zeitenwende, a German word which means a historical turning point. And that is relevant because Germany's Chancellor, in a major speech announcing a complete reorientation of Germany's foreign and security policy, used that word to describe the impact of Russia's invasion on German policies and practices. To help us understand the significance of that and where Germany is at the moment, I'm delighted to be joined by Annette Dittert, who is the Bureau Chief and Senior Correspondent for ARD German Public Television here in London. Annette, welcome.
2: Hello, and thanks for having me.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And and I started there with, with that word. Uh, we already, of course, have in the political lexicon, schadenfreude, and we now add to that <laughs> this new word, seitenwender. Um, this isn't going to be a German language lesson, but perhaps you could uh, talk a little bit about the significance of uh, Chancellor Schultz choosing to describe Germany's situation in such a way.
2: Yes, I'm very happy to do that. First of all, I said, before, as I said before, you're the first Brit I've heard who pronounced it correctly. Normally, it's always Zeitenwende, and then it means something completely different. <laughs> Zeitwende means a time a really historical shift yeah. of times, of, of a way the p- political situation is seen and, and acted on. And what Scholz did at, uh, when he when he sort of put this word in the center of his speech in the Bundestag, I was in Berlin at the time, was something very surprising at the time because it he announced basically a massive shift from the German stance on being a pacifist country that doesn't do war, although... There were arms delivery before, but anyway, the the official picture and the self image of the Germans was always, and I've been, I grew up like that as well. That we are a pacifist country, we don't do war, we don't meddle, we don't do uh, anything on our own anymore. uh, Looking back, what we did in the Second World War, etc., Pepe, and he suddenly, under a lot of international pressure, announced this all will change now, and it's really hard to over. Or underestimate how big a change this is for Germany um, and how big a step that was. the big question now is whether he and his government are really fulfilling it and uh, as I said earlier in a few articles I wrote for the new statesman and this is something that won't be implemented immediately because it's such a huge step for Germany and for the German yeah mentality as well to change yeah. that this will be a back and fourth, this will take a while. And that's exactly what we're seeing at the moment now. You can really see how the government is sort of, yeah, almost afraid of their own courage, if you like. Yeah. And it's, it's a hard movement, a hard change to really implement on many
1: levels. Yeah. So I think w- what you've just said there Annette, is really seems to be uh, the obvious next area for discussion, because we, we all saw the speech, we, we learned the new word. Um, but then uh, the question is, well, OK, so what's changing in some senses, there there is understandable impatience, but some mm-hmm. will also want to argue that it goes further than that. That there is a uh, mercantilist and pro-Russian tendency in certain parts mm-hmm. of the German political environment. So, how do we unpick that? How much of this is about how difficult it is for a big? And uh, a politically complex country to change its direction, and how much is actually about internal resistance to change? Mm-hmm.
2: I think that's um, it, it's really tricky to unpick it because it has so many levels. But I would just start, let's say, with the uh, with the energy situation. Yeah. Sure. Um, Germany has, and that is part of its history that they have now to look into properly how this could happen, has this massive dependency on on Russian oil and gas, like almost 50% when it comes to gas. I don't know how much it is at at the moment exactly with oil, but also an overwhelming part of the German energy situation is totally dependent. And and, uh, the, the companies as well are totally dependent on Russian gas. And that's something that the current government in Germany more or less inherited from the previous one. Yeah. So especially the um, Secretary of State for Trade, Robert Habeck, who's coming from the Greens, he inherited that. They, the Greens were always against it. That's the part of this coalition government, the party in this coalition government, who have always said this is not right, and they now have to sort it out in a way. In I mean, he has to sort it out. And he, I would say he's really trying hard. And compared to how difficult the situation is i think so far he's done really well i mean he's announced that they're now very close to weaning themselves off uh, oil to, till maybe even the end of the year which would be a massive achievement yeah um the fact that this dependency has been there in the first place has a lot to do with with yeah some german complacency and and you could say i mean first of all This German pacifism was a big achievement after the war, I think, Mm. and it was something that that we all worked very hard on, and I think it was a good thing. But there was a certain moment when this became a a dead pattern, if you like, and and in the shadow of this dead pattern or this dead moral justification of pacifism in that shadow, there was some kind of inherent egoism to to be able to deal uh, with Russia in a very convenient way without seeing the political risks. North Stream 2 was a really, was always a political weapon. And a lot of people said that in Germany as well. But especially the SPD and Merkel at the time kept saying, no, it's an economic project. When Biden was in Cornwall for the last G7, he had a very heated discussion with with Merkel on that. And she insisted and and remained unshaken in her position that this is a purely economic project and we keep doing that and we will not move an inch here. Uh, All... This is something where I think um, the whole past that Germany has been so proud of has somehow suddenly—it's almost like you take the, yeah—the shadow fell away, and suddenly you can see it as it was. It was yeah. also a lot of uh, economic egoism and uh, totally ignoring the political risks uh, that came with it.
1: And. When we dig into this a bit further, of course, there is there's a historical aspect you, you've already mentioned uh, very clearly Germany's desire and need to, to forge a pacifist path after the end of the Second World mm. War. But there's also the, 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 the sort of history of Ostpolitik and the, uh, the, the desire for Germany to have a kind of productive uh, and cooperative relationship with Eastern Europe, even if it was not, you know, Germany was always part of NATO and part of the Western Alliance. So, how does that play into this whole uh, debate?
2: I mean, Germany has, if you look at it back, and I've always said that, by the way, because I was the correspondent in Poland for years before I came to London, has always been very uh, condescending towards Eastern Europe when it came to its relationship with Russia. I mean, Nord Stream 2 was the idea to circumvent Ukraine and all the Eastern European countries to get all directly from Russia,
0: yeah.
2: which has been seen for years by Eastern Europe as a as a dangerous move and exactly as it is now, an impossibility to blackmail Germany eventually and to enrich Russia and Putin to make this machine, this war machine, possible in the first place. Yeah. The Polish governments, whoever was in government, has always said that. It was always a very, very difficult talking point when, when uh, German ministers met with ministers from Poland. Um, and Germany, whatever government it was, they just simply ignored them. That was always a really bad idea, and um, and these countries are now also, no wonder, at the forefront of those countries to say, we have to stand up to Russia. And even now, Scholz is not really clear enough, I find, when it comes to condemning what, what what Russia is doing and not clearly clear enough when it comes to saying Ukraine as a country needs to win this war. It's sort of always like back and forth because there's this old fear of Russia as well. The angst that the Russians could come back into Berlin, this idea you have to be careful with this big bear in the east because they could come back. So this appeasement policy that Scholz is always even today, falling back into, comes also, I think, from, from the perception of a much more direct threat by Russia than you have it, for example, here. When I'm in London, I don't feel that so much. When I'm in Berlin, it's completely different. Yeah. So it's a complex thing on many levels um, that leads Germany to not being that outspoken, that clear, and always tapping back into this, in my, my view, false um, appeasement policy.
1: And is is there a significance of the role of uh, the former chancellor uh, Gerhard Scherder in all of this, in the sense that he is, of course, uh, directly um, an employee, effectively, of the Russian mm-hmm. state?
2: I mean, that's that's an awful embarrassment. This this man that he still is a member of the Social Democratic Party. For years, people have said he, that he should been thro- have been thrown out of the party, which the SPD, the Social Democrats, the German Social Democrats never did. And even now, now they've slowly started to get this process into life. But it's still since the, this interview in The New York Times that I think almost everybody read, even here, where he made clear that he's still sticking uh, to uh, his friend Putin. It was I thought that was a shock in Germany nobody really expected that although they should have known I mean he's been on on Putin's side for so long I mean it's it's uh, yeah it's it's utterly embarrassing and I do not understand why the social democrats haven't been able to make a clearer separation from him I mean they're saying it somehow but you can still feel the reluctance and I mean that that is also Steinmeier the German president the Bundespräsident who's been a very close friend of Schröder's. And Zelensky suddenly decided that he didn't want to have Steinmeier in Kiev. And uh, there's a few other of these old guards who've always been more or less on the side of dealing with Russia and sort of appeasing that big bear.
1: Yeah, we should recognize, of course, then uh, that that is the significance of Schultz's change of policy. and And on that, I wanted to talk a bit about military, because one of the things that Germany has committed to do is a huge expansion of its military budget. And of course, you, you started with, with this concept of pacifism. Um, and when, it, when a military budget is related to the size of a country's GDP, and we're talking about Europe's largest economy, um, mm. this is billions and billions of euros. Yes. So one of the questions is, what, what will Germany do with all this defense money? Because it is, it's transformational, isn't it?
2: It is, and and once it's there, Germany is there. It will be the biggest defense budget in Europe, yeah. um, given the the scale of its economy. Um, what will happen now exactly is not as straightforward as people hmm. might think, because first of all, the now German army is in a deplorable state. Um, yeah. That is part of this kind of sleepy egoism that goes. Yeah, that is basically Merkel's legacy that nobody really invested into this um, army anymore and that money was used for something else, which made Germany very rich and and very, yeah, compared with here, uh, yeah, well-off country. But nobody really took care of that. And in that regard, Trump wasn't wrong when he kept saying Germany has to do something here. And now they will do that. But due to the fact that the army has been neglected for so long, a lot of this money will simply go into restoring um what there is into a, so, so that these tanks, et cetera, are usable at all. Because yeah. a lot of the equipment of, of the tanks are simply not in a good enough state to be used immediately. So this has this whole this I mean in a way it's almost unexplicable how this could happen in the first place, but it has happened. So these hundred um billion he um announced uh, as a zonda a budget for this i think uh, and, and if i listen to defense experts which i'm not but if i listen to all of them they all say a lot of this money will just go into making the army the, the equipment that's there to get it up to up to a state where it's usable and, and really fit to to work yeah. so that's one thing and then on the other hand there will of course be new new weapons and, and things that will be bought with that. And but this will take time. And I don't think this is a quick thing. I mean, you need to, to decide on what you want to buy and then you have to um, get permission to buy that uh, something that is much more complicated in Germany than in other countries because there's so many restrictions on what you can buy and, and so many people in such a bureaucratic system that has been implemented after um, the 50s, how you can get this stuff at all. And that shouldn't be, as I said, underestimated or it can hardly even be overestimated how much of a change that is. Because um, Germany slowly starts to understand that it has um, to become a leading, has to to take over a leading role when it comes to European defense policy as well. But it's difficult. And I can see when I see my friends or hear my friends in Germany, they are all really having trouble and, and really it takes time to really understand that. Because it's yeah. so it's so not ingrained in in our psyche in a way that we suddenly do war and and the whole generation of German millennials who have grown up um, after 45 they grew up in this strange parallel world completely devoid of the realities of plain power politics and and that's that's really it's it's really hard to explain how difficult that is to to make this titan vendor shift on a mental level as well uh, for Germans today, and that's why there is this back and forth. It's it's not an easy thing to do as it's such a deep change and it has to happen on so many levels.
1: And that that point you just made there is is actually sort of the really what I wanted to go to next, which is the German public. Now, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the false accusation of Nazism, which I'm sure has particular resonance in Germany, that has an impact. But on the other hand as you said, uh, generations, probably two or three generations have grown up in a Germany that was committed to pacifism for reasons that need no explanation. Mm -hmm. Uh, So is there actually political consent for such a major change for something that that means that in the future, maybe there will be less generous funding for national health or something like that, because Germany is now spending more on defense is are the German people ready for this?
2: I think they're more ready for that than our Chancellor, Mr. Scholz, is uh, thinking. Right. (laughs) Because when when you look at the polls, um, there is huge um, readiness for that. I mean, I don't have any poll like here in front of my eyes, but all those I've seen over the last two weeks, three weeks, have clearly shown that there is a huge scale of welcoming of changing that, even when it comes to the economy. I mean, there was this quote that we have to frieren für den Frieden, which means you have to <laughs> freeze for peace, uh, Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> which was rather funny, but it, it was a serious thing insofar as there was the overwhelming majority of Germans said, no, we're happy and we're ready to pay more for energy if that helps Ukraine. SPD, the German Social Democrats, and the Chancellor, who is part of this party, have been way more reluctant than the German public in that regard. And I think it was partly because, of course, it's easy to say that in a poll and then what happens if it really happens. And I think there was some anxieties if you easily and very quickly have unrest in the population when it gets too much. I think they were partly underestimating the German public. The polls clearly showed that partly may be cautious and careful for reasons. So that's also not, it's, there's not an easy answer. I think Probably the way it was done, like step by step, and now Habeck says we can probably wean off oil from Russia, it was probably the right way to do it, but then the communications were terrible. I mean, the yeah. way Scholz did not communi- communicate that and not explain that properly made German policy look much worse than it really was. Especially in Britain and in the US, I mean, there was almost a shitstorm when it came to Germany. I went off Twitter for a week or two because I had (laughs) enough of it, constantly being blamed by Brexiteers for Germany's reluctance um, on on many levels. But I think in a way, what they have really done is, I think, as much as they could do under the circumstances. It must never be forgotten that they have been in a very, very difficult situation as well.
1: There is, of course, the much bigger question, as you've mentioned, Germany is going to become Europe's uh, leading defence power. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, over the years, people have criticised Germany's low spending on Mm defence. But of course, you don't need to know much history to know that there was a reason for that. And there was, of course, for a long period, you know, that was how the world wanted it, that the world wanted Germany to be militarily powerless. So uh, is there a potential for not in the short term, but over a medium term, an element of nervousness to re-enter the European consciousness, particularly countries such as Poland, who have a very complex history of their own uh, with Germany. Uh, As Germany changes from being this pacifist, mercantilist nation into one that is a military power that must become much more engaged Mm. in the defense of European issues.
2: No, I don't think so. I mean I still have many Polish friends and whenever I talk to them they say, Come on, get a grip. I mean, mm. there is no fear of Germany. And I think there is no it's not necessary either. And I do not know any um anybody in Eastern Europe who would who would have that, who would say that. I think the fear and the anxiety of the Eastern European countries and especially Poland was always that Germany was asleep at the wheel. Yeah. And and um, I think the moment now as it seems to change finally. I think it's very much welcomed in Poland. And um, I think it's also, I mean, it's just crucial for uh, security in Europe. I mean, Germany just has to get its act together here.
1: Yeah. But where there might be fear is in the, the fever dreams of our favourite Brexiteers. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, uh, but but trying to be serious for a moment, it seems to me that uh, even if it isn't an official Uh, military force, there will be something that is basically an EU army, and it will be led by France and Germany, and of Mm -hmm. course will have important contributions from Poland and Italy and others. Um, Let's not worry about what it means for British politics, Mm -hmm. but what does it mean for Europe?
2: I mean, mean, personally, I do think that's necessary, but I do not see it anywhere uh, in the nearer future really happening, because for a European army that would be really integrated, it this is such a complicated process um, on a technological level on a on a management level, on a political level. Um, I do think that is something that very macron very much wants that he's always said that mm. Germany is very reluctant when it comes to that. And the other countries. I mean, we will wait and see. But I cannot see a European army as much as the Brexiteers keep that up as a as a as an imaginative horror image of Europe. Mm. Um, I, I I think personally it would be a good thing. But I do not see this coming in the nearer future. Really.
1: Okay. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about the significance of Germany's uh, ability to engage with Russia, because of course. It's easy to criticize Schroeder and so on. But what this also is, uh, importantly, is that a very deep level of engagement between the two countries. Some Mm -hmm. of it we might criticize, but some of it is is the fruits of decades of mutual trade relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a role for Germany in helping the rest of Europe to understand where Russia is headed? Because it seems that Russia's walked into this nightmare with Mm. Putin leading it that way. And uh, there seems to be a consensus that there's no way out for Putin, but there must be a way out for Russia. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, if you look at the group dynamics within uh, between the European countries at the moment, it it looks and feels to me almost as Germany feels we are the only ones who do the proper forward planning. That at some point we have to engage with Russia again. Yeah, And, and and that's something that, of course, the European, the Eastern European countries, the Baltic states, they don't see that that much because they are much closer to the border and they for them the immediate defense is much more important in a way and, and they also see that it's their interest that's been defended in ukraine that's something that hasn't really entered all german minds properly yet that it's not just the ukraine we're helping because we're such a nice country it's not just charity as yeah. shown sometimes formulates it, which I find really wrong, but that it's really our interest over there that, that we're having. But Germany sees itself, I think, still, or, or many Germans still see themselves and certainly Scholz as somebody who thinks a step ahead and thinks, how can we find a way of engaging somehow with this country again, as we did before? Because I think there is a feeling among some Germans, uh, it's not seen enough by by the hawks in Europe, I, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, Macron does play the diplomat-in-chief in a way, but um, I think Scholz thinks he's, he has to be the one who then will develop some kind of engagement in whatever way. So that certainly is the case. And um, yeah, it's something that maybe is something that needs to be discussed and thought about at some point. But I think sometimes Germany should now, for now, just see more that it's Germany and every democratic country's interest to defend Ukraine because we're defending ourselves there. And and that's a step that is sometimes not seen clearly enough when, when, when you hear Scholz speaking.
1: So, our always attentive listeners might notice a change in our audio situation as we're catching back up with Annette for a second conversation this week. Earlier, we spoke about the attitude of the German political old guard and their relationship with Russia, including the very strained relations between President Zelensky and German President Steinmeier. But no sooner had we recorded that than last night, President Zelensky tweeted that he'd had a very productive conversation with President Steinmeier, and in fact, uh, thanked him for his ongoing support. So, Annette, it's good to rejoin you. Hello. What's the situation now? How has this situation evolved in, in the past 24 hours?
2: Well, yeah, things move fast these days, as we see, yeah. <laughs> even for a podcast. Um, What has happened is just straight after we finished recording yesterday is that there was a phone call after all between Steinmeier and Zelensky, um, between the German Bundespräsident and the uh, president of Ukraine, which came as a surprise uh, for many uh, yesterday, as this wasn't Yeah, I didn't foresee that either, I must say, because um, the standoff and this awkward situation had been quite difficult. And I couldn't really see yesterday how this would be solved. Um, So suddenly it was solved. Um, Apparently, or that's what he said, the opposition leader, Friedrich Merz, he was in Kiev um, two days ago. And he claimed on Twitter as well, saying that he solved the situation when he was there and he persuaded Um, Zelensky to finally just make this phone call and solve things. And uh, yeah, they have spoken, apparently 45 minutes, so quite a long talk. And at the end of this talk, uh, both tweeted that it was very productive. And um, Zelensky repeated today again that uh, uh, Steinmeier is uh, invited to come to Kiev, ideally together with Scholz. Today, Zelensky, interestingly enough, in a talk to Chatham House, put up the pressure a bit and said Scholz would be very welcome to come on the 9th May. So he suddenly gives a date and, and puts yeah. the, the pressure up even. So this has been solved, apparently, but still, um, Scholz still has to go there. And he has still not said that he has any plans to go to Kiev. It's not entirely resolved. He has now announced that the German foreign minister will go there to reopen the embassy in Kiev. And um, yeah, it's still a bit unclear when he will come himself. But the the road is clear now, I would say.
1: Yeah. Well, this feels important because uh, we were talking earlier about, in a way, the sort of bureaucratic obstacles mm-hmm. to Germany throwing its full support behind Ukraine. It's clear that the policy is to support Ukraine, but is that policy taking place in practice? And and this feels like one of the last significant obstacles uh, to that policy really having practical effect.
2: I mean, it, it's mostly, I think, a, s- a symbolic thing that Scholz just said, "I'm not going there because he didn't disinvited our our president," and and it was more an atmospheric disturbance that we had there because all the while that happened, Germany did deliver and did support uh, weapons and money and so on. I mean, as I said earlier in the podcast or yesterday, we it's a bit of a shame that um, the way the, the communication was so bad and the way Scholz presents himself is so awkward and so hesitant and so reluctant that it sort of overshadows a bit what really happens. And I think now the road is clear to talk to each other more uh, directly. And that will certainly help also on a factual level. But all the time while this was ongoing, this awkward standoff, there was uh, the the help Germany uh, gave and provided Ukraine with was ongoing anyway. So it didn't stand in the way of what happened really, but it was more like, yeah, an awkward standoff that certainly didn't help on a diplomatic level. So I think we are seeing a return to a more way more normal situation on a diplomatic level as well now.
1: Yeah. Zelensky has said that his expectation that, is that the relationship between Germany and Ukraine will now be intensified. And given that, that takes us right back to the beginning of the conversation and that crucial concept of Zeitung Wende, the historical turning point. So mm-hmm. is this the start of Germany's new perspective as Europe's largest military player, Europe's largest foreign policy actor, the beginning of the new Germany?
2: One certainly hopes so, because this is really necessary in Europe and really important for the survival of the EU as well as a, as a Western unified bloc so i very much hope so i think it will it is probably the start but i do expect a lot more back and forth because it is such a huge change as i said in the very beginning that this isn't easy to do with with uh, germans as well i mean there is huge discussions in the german society at the moment there's open letters from all corners politically that sort of discuss with each other it's a it's a big change the Zeitenwender as a as a change of mentality has started. But it's such a huge change that I expect a lot more hurdles and back and forth situations like we had before. So it won't be straightforward. But I think the Titan vendor has started after all.
1: We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app, Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes thanks for listening we'll see you next time